Hello, everybody who listens to futureprimitive.org. I uh, enjoyed my conversation with Richard Doyle so much a couple of weeks ago that um, he has been very generous to accept to speak with us another time. I want to remind you, but I won't go into it in at length, that Richard Doyle uh, earned his PhD in rhetoric at UC Berkeley, and uh, his less formal name, uh, when he's not Professor Richard Doyle, or along with being Professor Richard Doyle, is Mobius. So we are going to dedicate this moment to uh, the book that Richard just finished, which is called Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and the Evolution of the Noosphere. And this book will be out in 2010. But here you're getting a delicious taste of um, what will come. So, Richard, I might start with the fact that you say this book will suggest that indeed in responding to global climatic change, we must less adapt than evolve. And this evolution begins with the recognition of plants and the earth itself as a power, perhaps a superpower worthy of the name. Yes, um, you know, when I first wrote those sentences, uh, I wondered how someone was going to respond to them to the extent that, uh, like you, I lived through the uh, Cold War and uh, all of this uh, human arrogance about, uh, um, and almost pride at our own ability to destroy each other uh, and the planet. But what I saw happening and what I tried to testify to in that first chapter is um, a kind of dawning recognition of what the real power of this planet is and where the real superpower resides uh, and that one name for that power would really be Gaia mm-hmm. um, and that there was a kind of atrophy of our ability to perceive the um, first and foremost the plant aspect of the planet since I believe 95% of the biomass of the planet composed of plants, Mm -hmm. and so uh, the book became uh, a journey for me and a journey for the reader to learn how to recognize that plant aspect of the planet and to perhaps uh, learn how to evolve in response to it rather than uh, against it. Mm -hmm. Um, In that context, it seems like the war on drugs, with which we're all too familiar, um, has really been a war on plants in many ways. Uh, over the last uh, 38 years. And um, to me, that really explains it in a way that makes it comprehensible. Whereas, like, the sort of police actions against these uh, non-controllable controlled substances really seems kind of irrational and absurd. But when we recognize that it's that human beings, some human beings are deeply threatened by what they feel is their... Uh, lack of power over the enormous superpower of nature, then it becomes to me more comprehensible. Mm -hmm. So that's what it seems to me too, that uh, it seems uh, absolutely unbelievable that one can continue to make the planet illegal. comedy when, when we think about it that uh, human beings which have evolved 
wish to somehow partition uh, uh, plants uh, as a kind of apartheid of uh, the, uh, uh, of living systems. Um, but you know, it, it has its tragic aspects, obviously too, and it's um, those, those tragic aspects are yes. what compel us to act. Absolutely. Now, um, Rich, would you um, talk about why Darwin and making Darwin, bringing out the sexy aspect of Darwin? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you know, you, you said it well uh, there a few minutes ago when you said, you know, that, that, that our task is less to adapt than perhaps to evolve. And, um, in a, in a way, historically speaking, right, we're, we're living through a period where uh, some of the big paradigms have, as it were, died off, right? Um, psychoanalysis, uh, Marxism, um, even philosophy itself in a certain way could be seen to have uh, died off. But evolutionary thinking is more or less sort of de facto framework that um, people in diverse and sundry disciplines and locations uh, think, uh, they, they think in this very language and in this framework. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like uh, the framework with which to address this. But what's interesting is, is that um, I found over the past 20 or 30 years even of reading Darwin, that the version of Darwin that um, was uh, repeat, continually repeated and sometimes taught uh, was a incredible parody of the original complexity of this deeply ecological thinker, right? Um, mm. That may seem like an anachronism because ecology, of course, is mostly a uh, late 19th or early 20th uh, and 21st century science. But you may recall a very famous passage um, that, in fact, uh, Timothy Leary cut up in uh, High Priest, I believe it is, which is uh, when Darwin is writing and he says, it is interesting to contemplate an entangled bank clothed with diverse flowers and plants mm -hmm. with various and sundry insects flitting about, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and it's that Darwin of the entangled bank yeah. that I wished to bring into relief against the uh, discourse of nature red and tooth and claw or survival of the fittest, that mm -hmm. there was a deep recognition that I found over and over in reading a great deal of Darwin's work of the deeply interconnected nature of all living systems and the unity of all living systems and the role of human consciousness of beholding and appreciating and acting on that unity of all living systems. And so what I'm trying to do with Darwin's Pharmacy, among other things, mm -hmm. is to really um, uh, encourage people to take a double take on what they think Darwinism is and what we, they think Darwin uh, was arguing for, uh, and to go back and look at those texts that are really beautiful. I mean, you know, they're written in the mid-19th century, but mm -hmm. we still live in that linguistic epoch. We can read Darwin. It doesn't take, it's not the same trial, however beautiful it may be as it is to read Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. We can read Darwin and we can see that Darwin is making incredible observations of nature. And in that sense, he was what we, you know, what Ernst Jünger later called, you know, a psychonaut. He was um, perceiving the way in which his mind was a manifestation of everything he was looking at. Mm. And it's that psychonautic aspect of Darwin that I wish to bring out. Now, how to do that, um, besides getting people to read the text. Um, one of the things that I noticed, again, over the past 20, 30 years is that because people were so selective about their uh, reading of Darwin and so selective about uh, the passages that they noticed, remember we're talking about a man who wrote over a thousand pages on barnacles alone, right? You know? So people were picking and choosing was that this idea that occupied a great deal of Charles Darwin's life, sexual selection, the idea of um, uh, evolution evolving 
different forms for the selection and sorting of mates, right? Mm -hmm. Think about peacock feathers. Yes. Think about fireflies. Think about birdsong. Like all these highly aesthetic and very beautiful, even Dionysian aspects of evolution, right? Parts of evolution that make us melt. Yes. Um, All these things that draw attention to our entangled nature, our way in which we're entangled with each other, that these things were being left out almost entirely, even by the people who were writing about sexual selection, even the people who were writing about, um, you know, uh, let's say, um, the competition between uh, um, goats for uh, reproductive success or uh, and so forth, because usually this becomes a way of telling the story of survival of the fittest mm-hmm. in another key. Mm-hmm. But in fact, what it is, is it's the survival of, it's, excuse me, the evolution of um, incredibly uh, and radically increasing capacities for the perception of and display of beauty. And that uh, bird song uh, where juvenile birds of certain species in the spring literally sing their brains bigger mm. um, become the kind of, for me, the uh, paramount example of what really evolution is up to and what we're up to mm-hmm. um, when, we, when, we, when we begin to comprehend what our nature really is. Mm-hmm. I think we've settled for a very reduced vision of who and what we are, and by bending people's gaze towards the birds and the fireflies, I'm hoping to that they have a recognition that, in fact, we're part of a beautiful, epic evolutionary journey in which the cosmos is tending towards greater and greater complexity, greater and greater beauty, and that we're here to perceive and create both of those things. <sighs> Speechless. <laughs> Speechless and very comfortable to admit it in your presence. So... Well, one thing that I'd like to say is uh, I really appreciate the fact that uh, you bring out this part of Darwin's writings because Timothy used to say that all uh, writing um, is plagiarism. And uh, I completely agree with him in the sense that back to the mosaic and the weaving, uh, how beautiful that you would go back to Darwin Darwin, and you would re-weave the story with our pre- his story with our present story. Yes. And it's really how, what parts of the story are, are highlighted that create the new story. So how do we come into speaking about echodelics mm-hmm. in terms of um, the uh, evolution yes. of the planet and us? Well, uh, one of the reasons I was really um, paying a lot of attention to sexual selection was that, um, and again, uh, uh, Timothy had, had, I think, figured this out early on with um, Metzner uh, and Alpert yes. uh, in, in some references that they made, uh, but I wanted to make it uh, kind of more elaborate and systemic for our present moment, which is that there's this kind of paradox that anthropologists and many ethnobotanists and archaeologists come up against, which is that when they look at the remains of human cultures or they look at actual existing human cultures and they see the persistence of what we call psychedelics um, and other intoxicants in the toolkit, right? They, and this presents them with a paradox because they're coming from this vision of evolution as um, ongoing, uh, simply ongoing war, right? And so they don't understand how a human culture could have survived using these um, intoxicants and these psychedelics while the tigers are roaming at the edge of the village, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes you see um, scholars noticing that, um, for example, some psychedelics such as um, DMT or psilocybin uh, could be used as hunting allies because they tend to 
um, increased visual acuity in some contexts, right? So this very functional description of the way in which a psychedelic could be a tool uh, in these contexts. Um, but from what, what I began to realize is that they were only looking at a very narrow uh, aspect of human evolution and forgetting um, this aspect of evolution, which I'm persuaded has very much to do with why we have such big brains. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, um, a evolutionary biologist named uh, Jeffrey Miller. He wrote a, a popular book called The Mating Mind. And uh, he suggests that the best way of conceptualizing why our brains are so big mm-hmm. is that it's a courtship device. In other words, that just as the birds sing unto each other, um, the males sing to the females, and the females learn to perceive the highest distinction, you know, the greatest distinctions of their performances um, is in order uh, as a, is as a courtship device, right? Mm-hmm. So, what better way to start manipulating and modulating this courtship device that we have up on our shoulders than through the strategic use of uh, different plants and compounds? Mm-hmm. So, to me, this paradox of human beings, ex- quote unquote, exposed to nature, right? The tiger at the edge of the village. Um, using psychedelics and other intoxicants no longer appears as a contradiction because now we can understand the use of psychedelics within the human toolkit as parts of sexual selection. And when I was doing my research, I found that primatologists um, have observed uh, mandrills digging up iboga root um, in West Africa, chewing the iboga root, waiting, and then engaging in highly ritualized, highly stylized uh, combat in order to pair up. Mm -hmm. And when I started looking uh, at the work of people like uh, Giorgio Samarini, a great Italian ethnobotanist who wrote a nice book translated into English called Animals and Psychedelics, Mm -hmm. this starts to be form a widespread pattern that no one seems to sort of systematically articulate it, that psychedelics seem to play this role for animals and they seem to play this role for human beings. Yes. Um, now, I suggest in the book that um, linking back to some of uh, Timothy's work and to uh, Terence Hy- McKenna's hypothesis about the origin of language uh, in human culture through this glimpsing of the transcendental other in the experience of psilocybin, that psychedelics... Um, very often in shamanic contexts function as adjuncts to eloquence, right? They increase our capacity for our own little version of bird song, right? We, That's right. And so for me, that closes the loop that says, aha, language is not just for the passing on for information, as we poets all know, right? Mm-hmm. It's for the induction of specific states of consciousness and if we can induce those states of consciousness, we'll, uh, you know, leave more progeny than if we can. So it's the great notion of the continued evolution of seduction. So you would understand, I rapidly interfere here because uh, I've understood it more deeply than I ever have, the first time that uh, Timothy Leary and I made love, he opened his briefcase and part of the foreplay was that he pulled out an issue of Life magazine. <laughs> you got it already. That had photos of the brain. <laughs> and uh, we had ingested LSD. And he showed me these photos of the brain as the most exciting part of our foreplay. And he said, this is where I'll be making love to you. That's beautiful, right? Intelligence is the greatest aphrodisiac. Right? That's right. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, I, I, again, I think that I'm not really saying anything new. I'm just trying to remind us. I think this is probably the oldest story in the world, in fact, um, that this is really um, our natures, that... Uh, this is, you know, that the imagination, for example, uh, exists as a uh, an attribute of our ability to make love. 
um, that's really beautiful confirmation, and I'm kind of uh, I'm immensely grateful for you telling me that story yeah. because it, it's nice verification, you know, because one just sort of you know starts to see a pattern falling into place, but you're never really sure. Well, reality is is recursive, isn't it? And yes. We learn from recursion. <laughs> yes. Recursion and repetition. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's beautiful. Life magazine. I, I should try to figure out what volume that was. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, it was extraordinary. <laughs> okay, back to Darwin's pharmacy. There's another level of the meaning of Darwin's pharmacy, though. Um, yes. That I wanted to uh, mention. Speak. Which is um, that, well, there, there are several others. Uh, there's one, Darwin's Pharmacy refers to the fact that, and this was early on in this project, that I noticed that Darwin, um, being an ecological thinker and being open-minded as he was, was fascinated by the possibility that plants had what he, what he called, quote, psychic tissue analogous mm. to the human brain, mm. that plants could possibly uh, be engaged in the attribute, uh, action of thinking. And uh, to test this hypothesis, he, he did a very interesting thing, which he exposed various plants to different drugs. Um, so that's another meaning of Darwin's pharmacy, right, that he's using this pharmacy, that the very definition of consciousness is that it can be altered. Wow. Um, and then the other layer of Darwin's pharmacy is what emerged in the research and writing of the book, which is that there's this very strange an interesting and persistent connection between the perception of evolution, the perception of the world as an evolutionary system, and visionary practice of using psychedelics and other visionary practices. So, for example, Alfred Wallace, who is not mentioned as often as Charles Darwin, but it, he was um, the, co, uh, uh, the co-discoverer or the co, co-writer of the first article on natural selection mm-hmm. uh, ever written, and it was because of Wallace's work that Darwin came out with his publications. Wallace apparently um, envisioned the entirety of his evolutionary system while experiencing a malarial delirium. Mm-hmm. And then if we go further, um, we have, of course, uh, uh, Timothy's uh, comprehension of the evolutionary nature of the human brain, which is, I think, one of the taboos that he was really breaking. Um, that uh, hello, yes, yes, and uh, and then we have in 1954. We now know with a pretty great degree of certainty that Frank was experiencing uh, the benefits of LSD while he uh, conceptualized and perceived the double helical nature of DNA. That's right. And then if we go 30 years later to 1984, we see that Kerry Mullis, who is the subject of uh, Chapter 4 in the book, mm-hmm. um, when he's an out-of-work dishwasher uh, in Berkeley after working for uh, a biotechnology company in the East Bay, um, uh, perceived uh, the, the possibility of polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, which was really the big biotechnological uh, breakthrough, the technological breakthrough that enabled uh, a lot of the stuff that followed. Again, he gives credit to the insights of LSD that, for his ability to perceive the nature of that system. And so to me, that traces out a very interesting loop between um, the vision of evolution and the use of these adjuncts so that the very uh, capacity to visualize evolution itself comes from the expanded modes of consciousness and perception that are enabled by these sacred plants. Mm-hmm. So, and then, uh, you know, the, the last layer, perhaps, of Darwin's pharmacy that I would want to mention is just this idea that it's a pharmacy for us now, that um, it's an evolutionary medicine that... Um, I think is the prescription for a good many of us, not everyone, and is neither necessary nor sufficient for the insights we need to have about the nature of the systems we're living in and the nature of the beings that we are. Mm-hmm. But speaking for myself, I can say that, you know, some of us are hardheads. Yeah. And, 
and and we need we need the help that these uh, I guess what the Buddhist tradition calls uh, special means uh-huh. uh, uh, to be able to perceive the nature of the reality that we're living in. And so, Darwin's pharmacy is a pharmacy for a planet facing uh, ecological catastrophe. That's right. Yeah, facing ecological catastrophe. So I want to ask you, Professor Richard Doyle. Uh, I believe it. Um, so hey, Mobius. <laughs> um, you could have written about an enormous amount of things because uh, weaving language and knowing language is your passion. Why write about echodelics and plants? Okay, well, I'll tell you, I got interested in writing a book on the history of psychedelics um, because, first, uh, I, I, I felt that the so-called drug problem was something that was calling me to write about. I lost my own brother to um, the regime that we live in. Yes. And um, I felt like uh, I wanted to work through the context by which we were so misperceiving, I think, the role of intoxicants and psychedelics in our culture. And I can see that to this day, you know, in my own town that I'm living in where there's this, you know, alcoholic binge drinking culture. Yeah. that both kind of completely denies our use of intoxicants and then, you know, abuses them continuously. But more, it started out more as a sort of scholarly interest just into um, the fact that I had written two books on uh, the way in which science works. I'm interested in the way in which language works in mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew enough from my reading around on the history of psychedelics, that there was this interesting problem, which was um, here was a science that was devoted to states that were inevitable, right? So how did you have a scientific discipline that was constituted uh, around experiences that really couldn't be written down? And I read at one point uh, about when uh, Timothy Leary was uh, using the technique of his friend uh, William Burroughs and Brian Geisen, Mm-hmm. to try to make sense of some of the write-ups that were happening there at Harvard by using the cut-up method. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so I thought, okay, so here's where the literary people get to be scientists, right? When the scientists... So get say to be, what uh, the cut-up method uh, was. Right. I mean, um, I use it. <laughs> it. I use it sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally. Right. Um, uh, the cut-up method was uh, a t- technique that the American writer William S. Burroughs used and learned from his friend, the Swiss artist, uh, Brian Geisen. And Burroughs used it as a way of, he would literally uh, write text and then, in a very ritualistic fashion, cut it up and rearrange the text that he has written mm-hmm. in order to find out what he had really written. Now, the idea here was is that the... Uh, the author's ego is only a small part of what is going on, and that creativity actually comes from a much more expanded aspect of our minds, what Burroughs called the third mind. And so by cutting up what you had intentionally written, you find out what, you know, I guess what some psychologists would call your transpersonal self mm-hmm. had written. And so uh, when I found out that this technique of the cut-up was being used in the lab, I was sort of, you know, game, I was in. I wanted to study everything I could about this. Uh-huh. Um, and when I, the more I read, the more this figure of DNA kept coming up as a way of making sense of the experience itself, that people would have recourse to the language about, and about DNA. And I had written my first two books about DNA, basically, so I thought, mm-hmm. wow, okay, this is an interesting loop, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm still answering your question, or trying to. Yes, yes. Um, uh, then, uh, through, I, I wrote a screenplay uh, based on Burroughs 
and Ginsburg's letters to each other um, when Burroughs went down to uh, drink yahe or ayahuasca. And um, the opportunity to go down to Peru and uh, drink ayahuasca more or less uh, kind of fell in my lap and in a highly synchronistic fashion. And little did I suspect that I would go down and uh, drink ayahuasca and learn the uh, non-metaphorical nature of plant teachers. In other words, that mm-hmm. I experienced the fact that I was being instructed by something that certainly felt like a sentient entity um, in the form of a plant. And so once that occurred and once I experienced um, some extraordinary healing through that plant and through the teaching of a curandera, Norma Pandoro, mm-hmm. um, I sort of, you know, I more or less had no choice but to write about it because it was very interesting that on a, on a particular uh, occasion when I was explicitly uh, being treated for my lifelong uh, severe asthma, mm-hmm. um, I, I asked Ayahuasca three things. I said, you know, please heal my asthma. Please teach me how to integrate this into my life in North America and show me some joy mm-hmm. because I'd experienced no choice mm-hmm. <laughs> first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I indeed was uh, experienced a remarkable uh, departure of this uh, affliction that I'd grown, lived with for 40 years or so. <clears throat> and then um, the same uh, entity, a kind of bird deity, Indian bird deity that I was interacting with or apparently interacting with, um, tested my breathing and then once it was clear that I was free of the asthma, began querying me about saying, okay, you want to know about North America? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you about North America. <laughs> <laughs> you can mourn all of my dead. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> and, and I had learned enough uh, from Norma and through interaction with Ayahuasca that, that I had total freedom. And so I said, well, you know, I have a body uh, on this plane and I cannot mourn all of your dead. This is tremendous. I, and I said, oh, no, 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 you will mourn all of my dead, by which I understood to be the Native American dead. Mm. And back and forth it went until finally... Um, Entity said, look, can you write about being healed by an ancient Indian technology? And I said, of course. And I said, okay, now some joy. <laughs> and so for me, um, writing Darwin's Pharmacy has been in part uh, uh, my uh, commitment to being true to that interaction. So it's been a joy for you to write this book. It has because um, there are aspects of the world that I never thought possible from my materialist viewpoint um, and that are not only possible, they're actual. I mean, uh, some of my friends are completely astonished by the changes that I uh, have experienced, all of them you know, positive, the absence of asthma is a positive thing. The absence of whole body atopic dermatitis or eczema is a positive mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. My capacity to, uh, my learned capacity to focus my intention and to uh, abide, you know, samsara, to abide the ups and downs mm-hmm. of everyday reality yeah. and therefore help, you know, teach other people and share what I've seen, you know, never would have appeared possible to me when I began this project. I was just curious about how you had a science of something that couldn't be written down. So, um, yes, it's been a joy to deliver on, on that promise. Okay, so, um, Watson and Crick uh, were given the awareness of DNA. Or at least Crick was, yes. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, Tell me what is um, the most uh, important thing you discovered, you've discovered. Yes, um, I would say 
the most important thing that I've discovered is is going I might seem banal to some listeners and to you in fact it, it's what I call the greatest hoax in history which is that subjective experience is real and actual by this I mean that again to, to, to return to some of Timothy's work that I think part of the question I wanted to answer in the scholarly you know investigation was why was there this huge reaction against psychedelics mm-hmm. and uh, why did a community that fought for so long for its autonomy from the church and from the state uh, lose that autonomy temporarily when it came to the study of psychedelics mm-hmm. and the answer that I came up with and that again it's pretty obvious but which is that the taboo that was broken was the taboo on the incorporation of subjective experience into the scientific method that the scientific method emerged out of, uh, in the West, out of the Royal Society's gradual withering of any use of subjective experience in science, right? And there's good reason for that, right? It shouldn't matter if it's Timothy or you or me mm-hmm. uh, using the air pump to demonstrate Boyle's Law. It mm-hmm. should just work. Mm-hmm. But when, we, when it comes to investigating the nature of our minds, that um, taboo on subjective experience uh, is not useful and, and not uh, uh, workable. Right. Um, but by the time uh, the early 1960s had come around, this had become so ingrained into our scientific protocols that it had more or less become something like an allergy, that any incorporation of, sci- of subjective experience into science was completely indigestible and almost irrational. Uh, by the uh, authorities uh, irrationally and there was an irrational hatred of it by the authorities and this reflects the fact that the mainstream view the mainstream scientific psychological philosophical view is that the experience that we're each of us is having right now is purely illusory and epiphenomenal and not real right that subjective awareness is just a kind of now, I, I think there's some truth there in the Buddhist view of these things, the Vedic view of these things, that, in fact, we're not perceiving reality uh, most of the time and that we can't become ensnared by uh, our perceptions. But this goes beyond that, which is to suggest that our deep experience, uh, experience of, um, of having an experience at all is itself illusory and purposeless. Right, that um, we have no purpose in our lives and that we have no reality in our lives. And I look around and I see a society and a, a planet filled with people who believe that they have no purpose and that their own experience of the world is meaningless. Um, well, you know, that's just false, right? That's just a kind of um, bad science, uh, side effect of an extremely powerful way of looking at the world, which is for lack of a better term, that subject-object way of looking at the world where we are somehow distinct from the world or separable from the world. And again, that has its uses on certain uh, scales. But one of the reasons I love going back to Darwin is to notice over and over the way in which we are thoroughly entangled with the world Mm -hmm. and that therefore our experience of, you know, our so-called private subjective experience is as real as the phone on this table, is as real as the flower that I'm looking at out the window, mm-hmm. and is indeed as natural as both of those things, and as actual as both of those things. So what I call the greatest hoax in history is the way in which uh, some philosophers and some people and some scientists have convinced themselves that the very thing that they're arguing, in which they argue that consciousness doesn't exist, <laughs> doesn't exist, <laughs> you know, that, that their own experience doesn't exist. So what I have discovered, um, uh, and part of the healing path that I've been on, which is that my subjective awareness very much exists, and that I need to take responsibility for it, and that by taking responsibility for it, I can uh, um, decide the kind of world that I intend, which doesn't mean I wake up and uh, when I look outside, all I do is intend to see fairies and 
minstrels and so forth, but you know, it doesn't hurt to pretend to see such things <laughs> and, and, and to manifest those aspects of nature that we have been repressing and ignoring and exterminating uh, for at least the past 500 years as part of the unfolding of modernity. Mm-hmm. And so, but just as we have narrowed our consciousness, again, sometimes for useful ways, we can learn that that's just a model of reality and that we, we have, there's an infinity of ways in which reality can be, can be modeled and that um, we're very much up to that and responsible for it. So that's the greatest thing I think I've discovered. <laughs> Thank you. It's like, uh, my life is my art. Yes, I mean, that we can discover that we are the creators of our lives, of our collective lives, and that we can take on that responsibility of being creators. Now, I want to say a little bit about the difference between being a creator and being a manipulator. Yes. Because um, this biotechnological um, revolution that has come out of some of these experiences of Crick and Mollus and others, um, sometimes, you know, can become this idea that we're just manipulating nature to do whatever we want it to do, and usually that means whatever makes the most money for the smallest number of people and impoverishes, impoverishes the, the rest yes. and be charged for it. Um, but I think that there's a, a very simple distinction worth remembering between creation and manipulation, where creation, to go back to the cut-up method again, uh, involves the letting be and the letting manifest of the material attributes of what we're working with, right? So it's the capacity to be surprised by what we're painting or sculpting or writing or saying, mm-hmm. and not simply the manipulation of a pre-existent vision that our ego already has that we wish to manifest in external reality. And so creation involves a kind of uh, giving up of egoic control and a witnessing of the beauty that can come into being while we participate but do not dominate Mm. the processes of nature, whereas manipulation is this kind of uh, ever-increasing capacity for control that increases so much that it forgets why, you know, so Burroughs used to say, can control, control, control? (laughs) Negative. Negative. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that distinction is really worth coming back to here because, um, again, I think what we rediscover is that we are the, um, um, you know, we are the artists of the planet. We we are... Mm -hmm. um, unmistakably entangled now with the collective um, future and collective destiny of this planet, like it or not. And so as we think about how to live up to that responsibility, a responsibility that Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley's brother, mm-hmm. called transhumanism, mm-hmm. right? It's kind mm-hmm. of recognition of our role uh, in nature. Mm-hmm that we need to remember that distinction between creation and manipulation and that we're not going to um, solve the ecological crisis that we're in by seeking to extend more and more control but instead by learning how to be creative participants in the processes that we're entangled with yeah absolutely what does she call it? Oh, this woman who says, observe nature and you can find out how to do anything. Yes, um, um, the, the word I, the, the ugly but interesting word that I use in the book is stigmergy, uh-huh. um, which just means working with already existing order. This is how termites build their incredible condominiums, right? Yes. And 
that nature is a kind of incredible reservoir of all this order. And so biomimicry, yes, stigmergy, by stopping our manipulation and getting still with what all the incredible beauty and complexity that already exists, we will find the solutions. Um, Okay, I have a question for you. (laughs) We will soon come around, but uh, I want to um, ask you this. Um, I think you're a very good person to speak to our audience about here you are, you have studied the, um, the, the plants that the Earth offers us for eco-evolution. Um, you have studied psilocybin, you have studied ayahuasca, uh, just to name a few. And also, you uh, respect and incorporate your subjective reality, your subjective thinking in other people's. Um, And you are also a very functional person in this world. You have children, you uh, pitch a tent, you teach at university. Uh, Speak to our listeners about how these things can coexist with what others would call a normal life. Right, beautiful. Um, one of the reasons I want to st- learn to study Sanskrit um, is to, uh, well, first of all, to just learn the incredible capacity of that language to alter our consciousness. Mm-hmm. But also uh, because there's this whole tradition of householder enlightenment, which mm-hmm. is kind of what we're talking about here. Which yes. Is, you know, usually we think of um, capacities to have this sorts of insight or, you know, be on the path to enlightenment as something that we must leave society for or be uh, separate from society about. And no doubt that's true uh, some of the time. But I think many of us and this planet no longer have that luxury and, um, and no longer choose that way either, that we have a way of love that we wish to pursue. And that um, while I can understand that from the outside it might sound like a contradiction to pursue uh, the teachings of these sacred plants and to um, be a part of a uh, household and a family, nothing could be further from the truth that in fact um, I could not be uh, a father, I could not be a teacher uh, if I had not learned who I was uh, a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And that if I had not learned uh, the great strength that we all have within us, the Buddha nature that we all are, that is all of our birthrights, and that if I had continued to live in a reality where I did not have those perceptions, I would be living in a state of continuous panic and fear. I don't think I'm over, I don't think I'm exaggerating uh, the nature of the lives that most of us live in moment to moment. uh, When we're facing the task of keeping our kin alive and uh, um, facing the future, the unbounded future that we face together. And so what I would say is that the proper use of these sacred plants inevitably points us to ourselves. Right? inevitably points us to the work that we have to do, each and every one of us, to become aware of our own attributes. And becoming aware of our own attributes allows us to be a father, allows us to be a mother, allows us to be a teacher in a way that most uh, benefits each other. And it allows us to, at least maybe most of the time, transcend or sidestep this egoic grasping over me and what I want in this perception of who I am as a separate being from reality. It's only by learning that I am an entangled being that I can really be a part of a family. Otherwise, we're just a collection of individuals, Mm -hmm. right? So too, can I only be a teacher by learning that I am entangled with my students and that I can learn from them, my students, as much as, clearly as much 
or more than they learn from me. And so um, this capacity of uh, ecodelics, the sacred plants, the entheogens, the psychedelics, to break down the borders between self and other is an experience, I think, that we deeply need uh, in this period when everything else in our infrastructure is encouraging us, demanding that we see ourselves as separate and in, embattled. Mm. So there, the, the view, I must admit, this surprises me too, that coming to it as I did as somebody you know, who was uh, you know, born in 1963, that my view of these things was shaped by the counter-revolution against the counterculture. And it always uh, appeared to be something that would be endangering one's role as a member of a family or endangering one's That's role. Right, yeah. I think it's important, of course, to be careful, right? We have to respect the power of these points. We have to respect the power of the ingrained taboos of our societies. Mm-hmm. But I think that we can do that and learn where we need to go next in order to be the best possible beings that we can be. Or, you know, or as the army used to put it, be all you can be. (laughs) (laughs) So, which I, you know, at least this film, The Men Who Stare at Goats, would have us believe actually comes from psychedelic culture being incorporated into the military, so. Yeah, that was fun. Yes. So, to me, I mean, I, I hope I answer your question because to me, not only do these can these things go together, I think speaking for myself, they need to. That it is only through the healing that I was able to receive, be graced by from ayahuasca and Norma Pandoro and my own work on my path, that I would be in a position uh, to be anything like a father or a teacher. Richard, Thank you so much for your generosity of words and heart and your generosity of mind. And uh, what would you like to say in closing, my friend? (laughs) Look for the entangled bank. (laughs) Find your intertwingularity and uh, all will be well. Excellent. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making your own tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.